Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Amidst this pandemic, medical schools say they're getting way more applications. And credit goes to a certain Dr. Fauci. If it works to get more young individuals into medical school, go ahead and use my name. Be be my guest. (laughs) From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll learn about some of the factors driving applicants, including this Fauci effect. And the shift to working from home meant Maine government workers drastically reduced their carbon emissions. Uh, I would say this is seismic. What a drop in transportation emissions could mean for climate change and for health. Plus, we'll hear from a Boston reporter about covering a murder case that's now the subject of a new Netflix docuseries. They could not retry this case and win it because the evidence of corruption would upend this case. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. On Next, we've heard about the terrible toll that COVID-19 has taken on nursing homes, making them one of the riskier places to live in New England right now. More than 70% of virus deaths in Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island have happened in these facilities, according to data from the Kaiser Family Foundation. In Maine, Massachusetts, and Vermont, it's at least half of the deaths. These elderly residents often live in tight quarters with roommates, eat in communal dining halls, and the staff float from patient to patient, not to mention that older adults are at higher risk of becoming severely ill with the virus. We're going to begin today's show in Vermont, a state that had been more insulated from the virus than the rest of New England and the country. But as Vermont Public Radio's Liam Elder Connors reports, 10 elder care homes have experienced outbreaks of COVID-19 in recent weeks. Four Seasons Care Home in Northfield discovered its first case of COVID-19 in early November. One resident got tested when he went to the hospital for a non-COVID issue, according to co-owner Ashley Hudson. She says it was surprising. None of the staff had reported symptoms in their daily screenings, and none of the residents who are screened twice a day reported anything. So by the time the asymptomatic people tested positive, it was just all over. In less than a week, there were 22 cases at the 37-bed facility. Some of the residents, like 63-year-old Judy West, tested positive and started to feel sick. West says she got a cough, a headache, and a runny nose. Well, I was scared at first because you never know if you're going to die or not. The 32 residents were confined to their rooms and staff delivered meals. They also got commodes so they wouldn't have to use the communal bathroom. The weekly bingo game was canceled. 71-year-old John Williams, another resident who tested positive, says being sick was worse than the isolation. Uh, I just feel so crappy. I really care about it. Staff were getting sick, too. Nearly 38% contracted the virus, and some couldn't work. It got bad enough that the health department gave Four Seasons permission to allow infected staffers who felt okay to care for sick residents. Hudson, the co-owner, was one of those who tested positive and kept working. 
I mean, I can't tell you how many times I cried. The residents here are our family. Lots of them don't have family that even, you know, come to visit them or anything. So you kind of feel a feeling of being a failure and not being able to keep it out of the home. More than 30 residents and at least nine staff contracted the coronavirus at Four Seasons, according to Hudson. State data indicates one resident at the facility died, but Hudson said that resident, who died last week, had tested positive several weeks ago and showed no signs or symptoms of COVID-19 when he died. But not all elder care facilities in Vermont have been so lucky. Nearly all the fatalities reported since November 16th have been at long-term care facilities. State health officials have attributed the outbreaks to the rising levels of coronavirus in Vermont and said many likely stemmed from asymptomatic workers inadvertently bringing the virus inside facilities. We've been taking a really aggressive testing strategy. Kayla Donahue is the leader of the health department's outbreak response team. She says the state increased its testing regimen so it can quickly identify positive cases and isolate them. Many uh, residents and staff members at these facilities are getting tested daily while we're trying to you know, learn more about the facility or when there's an active outbreak happening. While the new testing strategy might mitigate the severity of future outbreaks, for facilities currently fighting off the virus, maintaining adequate staffing levels is the immediate concern. At Elderwood in Burlington, more than 50% of its residents have contracted the coronavirus and at least 10 people have died. Two people working at the facility who asked not to be named said staff were exhausted, stressed, and scared. You're running around and it feels like your head's cut off, said one of the staffers. A spokesperson for Elderwood acknowledged that staff was, quote, stretched and said they were working with local health officials to keep adequate staffing levels. One of those partners is the University of Vermont Medical Center. President and Chief Operating Officer Stephen Leffler says the hospital is in daily contact with Elderwood. We have physicians going there to help deal with the issues. We've accepted patients from Elderwood when appropriate. We've added um, support there when appropriate. The state is hoping to address future staffing shortages with a new group of trained nurses who can be deployed during outbreaks. Monica Hutt, the commissioner of the Department of Disabilities, Aging, and Independent Living, says the pool of workers could be used to relieve the initial burden felt by facilities. As the virus enters the facility, staff are getting sick and have to get pulled off of their shifts. So there's always this period of time at the very beginning um, where before they can stabilize their own staffing resources, they typically need some assistance. The recent outbreaks and deaths come as the Pfizer vaccine is being distributed in Vermont. Health Commissioner Mark Levine says staff and residents of long-term care homes are among the first to receive the vaccine. Pharmacies that have been contracted to provide COVID-19 vaccine at skilled nursing facilities will receive a portion of these initial doses and may hold their earliest vaccination clinics at long-term care facilities as soon as December 21st. For now, state officials hope the stricter mitigation procedures will prevent any more widespread outbreaks. At Four Seasons Care Home in Northfield, all but one of the infected residents has recovered. The facility started to allow communal dining on December 3rd, and group activities have now resumed. On a recent Tuesday, some residents sat in the TV room, watching the 5 o'clock news and waiting for dinner. That night, chicken nuggets and french fries. Maude Ducharme, who's 96, says during the outbreak, the staff took good care of her and the other residents. My gosh, they've been right in here and cooking and like that, you know delivering our meals. I mean, it's extra work for the girls. I couldn't ask for anybody to be any better than they are. 
Hudson says they're still waiting for one resident who tested positive to come out of isolation. Another resident who tested negative is also quarantined and waiting for the facility to be cleared of the virus. Hudson says she hopes he'll be out of isolation just after Christmas. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Liam Elder Connors. Addiction treatment centers are also a riskier environment for COVID transmission as patients stay in close quarters. Clients and staff of a major center in Effingham, New Hampshire, say management was not prepared for the outbreak that started a few weeks ago. State officials say so far, around 50 COVID cases are linked to Green Mountain Treatment Center. New Hampshire Public Radio's Lauren Shulgin reports. The minute Peter Rosasco walked into Green Mountain Treatment Center, he says he knew there would be problems. I thought from as soon as I got there that it was just a ticking time bomb, that place. He was with his mom, Susan Axelrod. It was mid-November, and she was bringing her son to treatment as part of a plea deal he reached over some recent drug charges. So they get to Green Mountain, and they both say they noticed that the staff person doing patient intake was not wearing a mask. If I had not been so sort of just shell-shocked from the day... I think I would have said, hey, (laughs) can you go put a mask on? Because I thought about it later. I was like, that was not good. Rosasco had just come directly from another treatment center in Maine, where he was forced to quarantine upon arrival. He was tested for COVID. And he says they were incredibly strict about mask usage. But at Green Mountain, Rosasco says he was never tested. And while there may have been a mask policy, for the two weeks he was there, he says some people wore masks, some didn't. I kind of found it contradictory. The whole system of recovery and mentality is like doing for others and shit like that. And then to like not wear a mask just because it bothers you a little bit. I mean, the whole point of wearing them was for other people. Green Mountain is a residential facility on a remote 72-acre property in Effingham. Clients come from all over the country, some by court order, to detox and get treatment. It's run by Granite Recovery Centers, one of the biggest providers of substance use disorder treatment in the state. And two weeks ago, when news first broke of an outbreak, CEO Eric Spofford said they've been following CDC and state health guidelines since the beginning of the pandemic. But interviews with several clients, family members of clients, current and former staff members, and internal emails all dispute that claim. In August, Green Mountain's executive director said in an email that clients were complaining and threatening to leave, quote, all related to the lack of COVID protocol, end quote. Those concerns persisted. Three months later, everyone I talked to told the same story, that basic COVID precautions were not enforced consistently at Green Mountain. Take the dining hall. Here's Peter Rosasco again. You have the the entirety of the campus, minus the small IOP program, going down the same buffet line, touching the same serving utensils with, with, without masks on, whatever. No one was really sterilizing their hands. And then we all sat very close to each other eating. I also heard concerns about the vans. Not everyone in treatment at Green Mountain stays at the mountain. Some clients stay at a former inn run by Granite Recovery Centers about 35 minutes away. And to get back and forth, people told me clients are often crowded into these vans. Rosasco says he felt like a sardine in a can. And again, he says not everyone was wearing a mask. On November 28th, the company says it notified the state health department of a COVID outbreak at Green Mountain. But multiple clients say they didn't hear about it from staff. They heard about it from each other. A client named Mike, who asked us not to publish his full name, he found out a friend at Green Mountain had tested positive, and he figured people should know about it. So he stood up in the middle of a class. I said, you know, everybody in this room is exposed. 
Um, and that was a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people because they just didn't know. And I mean, in a way, if we, if we hadn't, you know, stood up and started talking about this, I didn't get the sense that anybody was going to say anything. Meanwhile, Peter Rosasco heard word of the outbreak and was trying to stay in his room. He was living in that former inn run by the treatment center. He says he'd only step outside to smoke. And on one of these breaks, he noticed vans coming from Green Mountain. I was just outside smoking a cigarette. And I was like, what the heck are all these people doing? Don't tell me that they're the COVID positive people, which they were. Multiple people told me that staff moved clients who were positive or likely exposed to COVID from the mountain to the inn. That means in a building with people who didn't know yet if they had been exposed or not. I heard a lot about lax quarantine procedures, like staff hanging a plastic sheet in a doorway to separate COVID-positive clients from other people. As all these stories were coming to me, I got an email from Granite Recovery Centers. They said Green Mountain was launching a new addiction treatment program, one specifically for people with COVID. Again, the COVID outbreak at Green Mountain is ongoing. And now the company is inviting more people with COVID up to what they say is an isolated unit that follows CDC guidelines. I asked CEO Eric Spofford about this new initiative, and he told me people dealing with addiction and COVID can't wait for their quarantine to end to get help. For our clients, the risk, you know, COVID certainly is risky, but addiction is riskier. Uh, You know, 14 days is an eternity for somebody that's seeking help for a substance use disorder. And a lot can happen in that. And there's a lot of risk in in waiting that time. But when I asked Bofford about his staff's ability to safely care for COVID patients, given the complaints I've been hearing, his press spokesman, Josh McKelvin, cut me off. I've heard multiple times from multiple people that the mask policy. Yeah. Lauren, I hate to interrupt. Um, I'm not going to let Eric respond to allegations that he hasn't seen before. Well, that's why I want well that's why I wanted to tell him about him because I want him to be able to answer. Well, we didn't see that in writing. I mean, it's just I can't. It's just, you know, that's everybody's got their hand out anytime they see an opportunity. I'm not saying there might not be some concern out there, but you gotta... after the interview, I sent them an email with a detailed list of these staff and client complaints. Spofford didn't write back. McKelvin, his spokesman, did. He said they wouldn't respond to these claims and that Granite Recovery Centers is committed to providing treatment to anyone who seeks help in the safest environment possible. Peter Rosasco decided it wasn't safe up there, so he and other clients checked themselves out of Green Mountain. Rosasco then tested positive for COVID when he got back to Maine and has now developed symptoms. His mom, Susan Axelrod, she's worried about how all this could harm her son's recovery. I worry that without... His community, um, you know, it's just it'll be a step back for him. I, I'm comforted by the fact that he's very committed to his recovery at this point. But I, yeah, I'm. It's it's definitely something that keeps me awake at night. As for the plan to take on more clients with COVID, Axelrod says it's an admirable effort, but she'd have to know what the health department thinks before she sends another family member there, because after everything she's heard from her son. She says, quote, I wouldn't take Eric Spofford's word for it. That was New Hampshire Public Radio's Lauren Children. Now, a potential bright spot in this pandemic, medical schools report applications are up dramatically. GBH Radio's Kurt Carapeza reports admissions experts are citing the pandemic, the economy, and a prominent doctor. 
Sitting inside her childhood bedroom in Natick, 23-year-old Mary Grace Kelly says for as long as she can remember, she's always wanted to be a doctor. We've lived here my whole life, so we still have some of those little kindergarten, preschool things of what do you want to be when you grow up, and mine always said doctor. When the pandemic hit, the Boston University graduate was working as a medical assistant at a private office that closed and then furloughed all of its staff. She took advantage of the free time and applied to 15 schools, just as medical colleges in the U.S. are reporting record application numbers. I'm someone who does love competition, so part of me is sort of excited for the challenge of Okay, there's more fish in the sea this year. While overall college enrollment is down nationally, medical school applications are up 18% compared to last year, before the pandemic. That's according to the Association of American Medical Colleges, which typically sees a 1% or 2% increase. It's unprecedented. Jeff Young oversees student affairs at the Association of American Medical Colleges. He says med schools expected a slight increase because of the weak economy, but nothing like this. Young chucks it up in part to the medical community's response to the pandemic. Applicants are so moved by the frontline essential workers, and they got really motivated. Young compares the crisis-inspired trend to what happened after another national tragedy. After 9-11, there was a huge increase in the number of men and women that were uh, entering into the military. Tufts has seen a 16% increase, UMass Medical in Worcester, 17%, and BU, 27%. This year, we have received 12,024 applications. Kristen Goodell directs admissions at BU School of Medicine. Her three-person staff is now sifting through all of those applications to fill about 110 highly coveted spots. Goodell says the med school with an urban teaching hospital is seeing a flood of idealistic applicants focused on social and racial justice. People are so aware that the pandemic has disproportionately impacted poor people and people of color, and what they want to do is make the world a better place. Behind closed doors, Goodell and other admissions officers have been calling this the Fauci effect. So what does the nation's top infectious disease expert think of the Fauci effect? It's very flattering that they're referring to it as that. We asked Dr. Anthony Fauci. Rather than the Fauci effect, it's the effect of a physician who is trying to and hopefully succeeding and having an important impact on individuals' health as well as on global health. So if it works to get more young individuals into medical school, go ahead and use my name. Be, be my guest. <laughs> Fauci says he sees the flood of medical school applicants as a sign that people are thinking about social justice and their responsibility to others. That counterbalances, I hope, and maybe would even overcome the other side of the coin, which is the fact that people have no regard at all for society and only just focusing very selfishly on themselves. One applicant Fauci has inspired is Sam Smith of Somerville. He says Fauci and the pandemic have made him change the specialty he wants to go into, to infectious diseases. I've always been a little interested in it, you know. Um, I think growing up I read quite a few of those, you know, Hot Zone and um, some of those infectious disease books. But it kind of put everything in perspective, right, when you see thousands and thousands of people getting sick. In Natick, Mary Grace Kelly says Fauci and other physicians battling the virus have inspired her, too. There's definitely a call to arms thinking that if there's another pandemic, it'll be up to us. Two aspiring doctors contributing to the historic increase 
in med school applications. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Kurt Carapeza. As 2020 comes to a close, we'd like to hear from you. How are you coping during these cold pandemic winter months? Are you setting particular intentions for the new year? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. After the break, how the switch to remote work helped Maine reduce transportation emissions, plus the lives we can save when those emissions go down. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Since the pandemic's early days, Maine government workers have reduced their car travel a lot. To be exact, by 1 million vehicle miles a week, thanks to rapid wholesale adoption of work-from-home policies. The preliminary data are opening an unexpected window on the future of telecommuting and its potential to deliver substantial reductions in global warming pollution. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reports. Last year, before anyone heard of COVID-19, Maine's legislature authorized a comprehensive analysis of telework's potential costs and benefits for state government and its employees. But as the research project got underway, the pandemic hit. And by April of this year, some 85% of the state government's workforce, accepting public safety positions, was suddenly working from home. In a research update to state lawmakers this month, Commissioner of Administration and Finance Kirsten Figueroa says the number of vehicle miles state workers drove dropped by more than a million miles each week. In the 30 weeks since, the state workforce saved an estimated 32 million miles worth of road time. I would say this is seismic. Representative Seth Barry co-chairs the Legislature's Committee on Energy, Utilities and Technology, and he was the original sponsor of the telework study legislation. As Barry notes, the pandemic forced a previously unimaginable experiment in the rapid adoption of telecommuting policies and practices. And he says it proves that telework holds big potential for reducing tailpipe emissions of carbon dioxide and other pollutants that contribute to global warming. The state of Maine climate emissions, uh, 54% of them come from transportation. And if if a large employer like the state of Maine can shift to 85% telework, that's massive. The state's memo estimated that CO2 emissions went down by 233,000 pounds a week as a result of the work-at-home effort. That means some 7 million pounds of CO2 emissions were averted since April. David Costello, director of clean energy programs at the Natural Resources Council of Maine, says the findings demonstrate that telework deserves more prominence in climate change policy in Maine and beyond. Particularly in the near term, while we wait for 
consumers to to quite frankly fall in love with with the zero emitting vehicles, electric vehicles, right? This is a great transition opportunity. And potentially a lot cheaper than massive investments in electric vehicle or renewable energy infrastructure. And according to the state memo, preliminary data from an internal survey of state workers found that 89% of respondents said they were satisfied with telework. Not only governments, but companies are realizing that workers do get work done. And it is something that'll be part of, I think, you know, many organizations going and businesses going forward, that they'll build in these remote work opportunities. Permanent, large-scale adoption of teleworking likely would create some new challenges. Those range from maintaining productivity among isolated workers to addressing racial, class, and geographic inequities in access to high-speed broadband or other resources needed for the virtual workplace. There seems to be a, a class problem here. Representative Ralph Tucker, a Democrat from Brunswick, points out that while so-called knowledge workers highlighted in the state report may easily transition to a home office, the jobs of many others require physical presence. What kind of class stratification do we have here? Are we we going to let the um, professional class, white-collar workers, work at home? but require everybody else, you know, all the delivery people, retail people, construction people, clerical folks, are we going to require that they continue to commute? Still, Representative Tucker, who co-chairs the Legislature's Environment and Natural Resources Committee, says that while preliminary, the sheer scale of the estimated pollution reduction from telework took his breath away. It, It doesn't give any final conclusions. It points out that solutions that we might have to use in order to meet our climate emissions reduction goals may shift the way we work and play a lot. Finance Commissioner Figueroa declined comments on her memo. She says she'll wait until an outside consultant, the Sagal Group, completes its work and publishes a final report to be reviewed by stakeholders, including state workers' unions. The final product will include survey data collected about telework from other New England states, broadening even further the real-world data that the pandemic has so quickly generated. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever. When we drive, fly, take public transportation, or buy food that was carted across the country, we're part of the greenhouse gas emissions problem in the U.S., Transportation is the biggest source of emissions, but a group of Northeast and Mid-Atlantic states is trying to change that. They're expected to sign an agreement as part of the Transportation and Climate Initiative, or TCI, that would reduce carbon emissions from transportation. Participating states are expected to sign on by the end of the year. Here's how the plan would work. Gas and diesel distributors would pay a fee for each ton of carbon emitted. The revenue would go toward cleaner transportation. The initiative is controversial. Gas prices could go up, and not all New England states are expected to sign on. But the health benefits have been spelled out in a recent study from the Transportation, Equity, Climate, and Health Project, or TREC. Kathy Fallon-Lambert is a senior advisor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a member of the team analyzing the potential health impacts of TCI. Kathy, welcome to Next. Thank you, Morgan. It's nice to be here. So how do transportation emissions affect our health? First off, as you mentioned, 
it contributes to climate change. And climate change can affect our health by increased exposure to heat waves and to extreme storms and weather events and to other health-related impacts like tick-borne diseases. And it also can affect our health by affecting air quality. So in addition to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, programs that could reduce other pollutants that contribute to air quality could be a health benefit. And then when we have access to safe biking and safe walking, we can gain more physical activity, and that can benefit our health by offering different modes of transportation that get us out of vehicles and and gaining access to, to biking and walking. And your study, it, it's really powerful because it looks at the potential health benefits if there was a plan like TCI, the Transportation and Climate Initiative. And in the study, you have this thing called the deaths avoided metric. Basically, if transportation emissions were reduced, who would not die? Can you talk about what those numbers were that you found? Sure. So the Trek team, which is a multi-university collaborative, conducted an independent analysis of a set of TCI policy scenarios that were developed by um, states who've been involved in the process. And we looked specifically at a subset of the health benefits that are related to potential improvements in air quality and also improved access to biking and walking. And the results show that the the cap levels for such a program and the different investment strategies could have a large effect on future health benefits. So one of the ways in which we evaluate health benefits is to look at premature deaths avoided. And these could be future deaths avoided due to air pollution or deaths avoided due to increased activity from biking and walking. We know from past research that even 15 minutes a day of additional biking or walking can have measurable health benefits. I want to just drill down to like the nitty gritty, like for the most ambitious plan, the largest cut to emissions, like how many lives per year are we talking about that could be saved? So our, our results are still uh, preliminary, but on the order of about 1,000 premature deaths avoided when the fo- program is, is fully implemented, um, going down to around 250. So there's a fourfold range there between the most ambitious scenarios and the, and the least ambitious scenario that we looked at. So generally, transportation emissions are damaging the health of people of color most. Would TCI change this and address that? So we did look at how the benefits would be distributed among different types of um, populations. And we see that air quality gains across all scenarios are slightly higher for people of color than for others. But emissions reductions would need to be much greater in order to eliminate the higher air pollution burdens that people of color historically and currently face. So there would be higher benefits, just slightly higher, but a large gap in the inequality of air pollution exposure would remain. Hmm. So it doesn't address the gap entirely. No, not entirely. But, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is right now that gap is – is substantial. And we really need to understand that we would take actions and programs probably beyond what 
TCI would do in order to fully address it. One of the things we've also been wondering about is, you know, last year, New Hampshire's governor said the state would not commit to joining TCI. What does that mean for the health outcomes you've outlined? Will this decision just negatively impact the health of New Hampshire residents? Or are the health of all people in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic going to be affected by that decision if some states like New Hampshire decide not to participate? Well, as I mentioned, we looked at two types of benefits the benefits of investing program proceeds in biking and walking and the physical activity benefits from that. And you can imagine that the states that participate who receive those proceeds and can make those investments would continue to see those benefits. Where you do see some change in regional scale benefits is in the air quality side. So, of course, air quality doesn't respect state boundaries. And so if some states participate and others don't, that could affect more than the states that don't participate. So it's, it's hard to predict, you know, exactly what the impact would be of some states not participating. But certainly, if there are fewer states participating, those air quality benefits would go down. What do you hope is the impact of your study? The most useful thing that states could do with our study is look at how to invest funds to get the greatest possible impact out of a program. And we're hoping to conduct additional analyses to look at how the funds can be invested to specifically address air quality in overburdened communities. Um, So by doing that, regardless of the number of states that participate, they will know really what they can do with the funds to get the greatest bang for the buck in terms of health benefits for people in their states. Kathy Fallon Lambert is a senior advisor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a member of the team analyzing the potential health impacts of the Transportation and Climate Initiative. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Morgan. As we just heard, transportation emissions have many health impacts, including contributing to respiratory diseases. Springfield, Massachusetts is the number one asthma capital of the United States. That's what the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America determined in 2019. The city gets that designation because of the high prevalence of asthma, as well as the large number of emergency room visits related to asthma. Zulmali Rivera Delgado joins us to talk about how this has affected her family and community. She's a community organizer in Springfield. Zulma, thank you for coming on next. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So have you or your family seen respiratory health impacts living in Springfield as you do? Yeah. So I grew up in the north end of Springfield, Massachusetts, which is predominantly Latino community and black community where the community itself was considered the most disproportionate community in the state of Massachusetts at one point. The Memorial Square and the Brightwood side was divided by a highway. The highway itself pretty much continued to divide the community and causing air pollution. Um, And so myself and my family, my mom was a a community activist, but she was also a dance teacher in our community. You know, she saw that there was, you know, a lot of children, not much opportunity. So she just, you know, started getting a group of kids and started teaching them dance in the park. And, you know, she did that. And then she moved into a school, which happens to be under the, the railroad and the highway, 
which also has environmental issues to this day. And so over over years, right, the long term effects is my mom ended up developing a COPD, right, and chronic asthma. And these are unexplainable conditions except for the environment, right? Because she's never been a smoker. She's maintained like a healthy lifestyle, like physically active from teaching dance. But yet and still these pulmonary diseases she developed, right? And there was there was never real a real connection from her her respiratory condition to her environment but just our living experience yeah she's still able to dance um not really um she you know she attempts to because it's it's in her heart it's in her passion but she utilizes the chair now to like instruct um you know she'll get up and do a couple of steps here and there but nowhere near she's only 64 but nowhere near the capacity where she was when she was like in her you know obviously 20s 30s and 40s but you know she still shouldn't be at in a condition right now where she can't stand for a long period of time or walk like even the stores even when she goes to the grocery store right like she needs assistant wheelchair because um, she's unable to walk without losing her breath or even feeling lightheaded where she's going to pass out. You said that, you know, no one drew the connection and said, all right, you have COPD and asthma because of the environment or because of pollution. But it sounds like you you draw that conclusion. Well, sure. You know, like for my daughter who happens to go to this school, the infrastructure of her school itself over time just got bad right and so these spaces where they were once vibrant with community spaces are now condemned right because of the water damage you know I happened to go pick up my daughter one day who suffers from asthma and you know there's days where I see her out of breath and I'm just like wondering what like what's going on you know I give her her asthma medication her steroids when she's needed I think we get so accustomed to like having what we have, right, that we don't realize that we can have, that we deserve better, right, and that over time, the health disparities that our children faced because of the school, we were never making the connection. It wasn't until, you know, my daughter had like, you know, she was short of breath. We started to make, you know, just to speak up about it, like, you know, how bad is this mold, you know, and and, and this environment alone, which, so it wasn't until I was educated a little bit on some of the air pollution that's happening in my neighborhood that I was like, wow, like these are some impacts to my community that we're not, you know, we're not even noticing because they're right under our nose or we just, you know, if we knew better, we'll do better. And so I, you know, it's just one of those things that was put upon us and we just learned how to deal with them. Yeah. So, I mean, you talked about your mother and your daughter both having experiences likely because of the air quality that they're breathing. What about other people in the broader community? as I said, Springfield has been identified as the asthma capital. Are you seeing that on the ground? Like, are you seeing that high prevalence of asthma among among other people that you're interacting with? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, a lot of people in the, like, in Springfield have asthma. A lot of people, you know, it's almost to the point that even when we try to make a, like, an argument about the health disparities around asthma, because people live with it so commonly that some of the episodes don't even get recorded, right? But then if you have these deep conversations with people, you know, you'll see a lot of parents like, yeah, my child has asthma, but I don't know why, right? Like, 
they identify the smoking with the with the asthma but they're not thinking about you know the car pollution or the the traffic pollution or the railroads or just like the commercial industry buildings we have a biomass that's trying to get built here in in western mass like you know why is there a proposal for a biomass plant coming to springfield yeah how does that feel to you though that feeling of this has been put upon you um well it's upsetting right because um ideally you know everyone deserves clean air right everyone deserves to have fresh drinking water like those are the things that are non-recyclable we can talk about infrastructures and places that we live in but when we talk about the external things that are free right and they're just being extracted right from us when it's it's a natural thing that we should have and so yeah it's it's very upsetting it's it's, it's disheartening because a lot of my folks don't really understand some of the health disparities that they're suffering to the environmental crisis that's happening. Zumali Rivera Delgado is a Springfield organizer for Neighbor to Neighbor. Thank you so much, Zuma, for talking and for sharing your experience. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Coming up. A new Netflix docuseries, Trial 4, tells the story of a Boston murder case, and a local reporter makes an appearance. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. In 1993, a white police detective in Boston was found murdered in his vehicle. The blame fell on Sean Ellis, a black teenager. Ellis served more than 20 years in prison for the murder conviction, always maintaining his innocence. Then, five years ago, he was released after a judge determined he hadn't gotten a fair trial. The new Netflix docuseries Trial 4 tells this story. One of the people you see in Trial 4 is GBH Radio's Philip Martin, who covered the case. Philip joins us to talk about his reporting and the docuseries. Hey, Philip, welcome to Next. Thanks, Morgan. Much appreciated. So, Philip, when did you start covering this story and what was day-to-day coverage like? I started covering this really close to the time when the case was reaching its apex the efforts by a number of people to make sure that Sean Ellis's case was reheard. And the charge was led by his attorney, as you know, Rosemary Scapiccio, charging in full steam ahead into the police department uh, and the district attorney's office in Boston, demanding uh, through Freedom of Information Act requests and other requests, information that had not been heard before. And what that information was, essentially, was evidence, strong evidence of corruption on the part of the very police officers who investigated the Sean Ellis case and the killing of this officer, John Mulligan. And that information was key. And the reason why Judge Carol Ball, Suffolk Superior Court, demanded a new trial. So the judge looks at this, says there's evidence of corruption, decides Ellis didn't get a fair trial, He's released. And then this is kind of at the point in the documentary where you make an appearance. It's when the current district attorney who decides what cases to try 
is stepping down and there's this hotly contested race to fill that seat. And you show up basically as yourself in this series. You are yourself, a reporter, interviewing people in connection with this election. And let's just take a listen to a clip of you in the series. It seems like a lot of new energy to a DA's race. I mean, what's changed? What's changed? I think what's changed in the matter, the fact that the matter is a lot to stake we have people of color that are running for this race right now. So, Philip, how does this district attorney race impact Sean Ellis's case? What you had here, Morgan, was a situation where several people were running for the DA's office. And you hadn't had a district attorney's office race in a long time in Boston. But they were also running at a time when the ACLU of Massachusetts was uh, promulgating a notion that what a difference a DA makes. For the first time, the DA's race was coming to the attention of ordinary people. Oftentimes, it's a sleepy affair. Very few people, in relative terms, vote for the district attorney. But people were starting to see that this was a very important job. Among those running for the district attorney's office at that time, Rachel Rollins in particular stood out. She has relatives who have been incarcerated, and she had been looking at the Ellis case and found it to be problematic in terms of its conclusion. At this point, she ran and she won in November. So in December 2018, the um, district attorney at that point, John Pappas, decided they could not retry this case and win it because the evidence of corruption would upend this case. However, they said at that press conference, and they insist to this day, that Sean Ellis is guilty. To make the point even more profoundly, they refused to void the gun sentence in this case. As I mentioned at the top, the detective was white and Ellis is black. And I'm wondering, as you're covering this case... Where did you see and where do you see race factoring into this incident? Morgan, if you go back to 1989, an extraordinary case took place in Boston where a white man basically accused a black man of murdering his wife. This is the Charles Stewart case I'm referring to, of course, when in fact it was Charles Stewart who had murdered his wife. What happened during that time, from the time Charles Stewart accused a black person of killing his wife to the time that he was discovered to have actually committed the murder was police had conducted searches throughout the Boston area and essentially were arresting, apprehending, picking up black men left and right. And in the minds of African-Americans throughout Boston, this was part and parcel of police behavior in Boston. Move ahead a few years to 1993 Enter Sean Ellis into, literally, into the store, Walgreens, September 26, 1993, and feeling free, telling uh, the police when they asked him later why he was at that drugstore, he said, I was there to buy Pampers for his cousin. But those words would lead the police to his door a few days later. Corruption is was a big issue in the 80s, as you've talked about, in the 90s. What about today, right now? Has the Boston Police Department changed significantly since then? The Boston Police Department is run by an African-American reformist, William Gross. 
And he certainly would not accept explicit examples of corruption like we saw in the 1980s and 90s. But there are problems within the Boston Police Department. Uh, There are still concerns about over-policing expressed often by African-Americans, Latinos, Cape Verdeans. A lot of people in the community are concerned that things have not changed enough. So, and what about Ellis? You know, he's in his late 40s. He is free, but he spent more than 20 years in prison. Has he received anything to make up for all those years lost in prison, like a settlement? He hasn't. It's not to say it won't happen. I know he's considered it. I've spoken with him. I've interviewed him at his mother's house, in fact. Uh, He still maintains his innocence. What he's focused on right now is the fourth trial. Uh, The fourth trial, again, not on the murder charges, which have been voided, uh, but now he's he's relying on a fourth trial to clear his name. He feels that a jury trial will clear him of the gun charge, and in clearing him of the gun charge has essentially exonerated him, is uh, his belief and that of his his attorney. He works at a place, uh, I think it's called Community Works, and essentially works to give back, works with folks who are in housing projects, who are basically poor, desperate circumstances that he grew up in, in the projects in uh, Boston in the 1980s and 90s. Well, I want to thank you so much, Philip, for talking. Philip Martin is a senior investigative reporter at GBH Radio. It's been a pleasure having you on. Well, thank you, Morgan. I appreciate telling an important story. And thank you for that opportunity. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. Thank you.